Welcome, everyone, to the 17th fabulous edition of the Metabilis 2 podcast with myself, Ben. And your co-host, David. Yeah, we've both got little slight frogs in our throats this evening, so you'll have to forgive us Mm -hmm. if that's something that you want to forgive us for. (laughs) Um, But I think this evening, or for this fabulous podcast, um, we're going to be talking about, ooh, spooky, the um, Hinchcliffe, (laughs) the Hinchcliffe Holmes era mm-hmm. of Doctor Who, which we are basically reckoning as kind of season 12, season 13, and season 14. And to the American viewer, this is probably their entry into Doctor Who, at least uh, American viewers yeah. in their 40s and 50s who watched Doctor Who in the 1980s with Tom Baker. Because it is the first three seasons of Tom Baker yes. with the producer for the majority of those well all but one really of mm-hmm. those of those shows being Philip Hinchcliffe who is thankfully still with us and is incredibly awesome yes and uh, the uh, script editor and also writer mm-hmm. for a number of, of of episodes and actually I think if you speak to I don't know if you, you delve deeply into fandom you'll see that actually a lot of people believe that he basically kind of pretty much wrote most of them as script editor, mm. uh, Robert Holmes, mm-hmm. who is very, very sadly not with us anymore. Yep, Bob Holmes. Bob Holmes. They call him Mr. Bob. Yep. And he um, was. Well, they didn't. Yeah. Did, did they have, <laughs> well, he was brought in. Didn't quote. <laughs> well, he was brought in as a writer by Terrence Dix. Yes, yes, and wrote some um, wrote some good ones, uh, and also some not so good mm-hmm. ones. But I think really came into his own as being a script editor. Mm-hmm. And as I said, there's been lots of kind of you know Shakespeare versus Marlowe textual analysis on behalf of Doctor Who fans to try and work out a particular uh, series that may have been ostensibly written by, let's say, Terry Nation. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely bits in it that are, that are, that are Bob Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's key things that kind of Bob Holmes brings in. Mm-hmm. There's always there's like a comedy double act. There's an obsession with smell. There's a sort of old-fashioned like uh, racism from time to time. Mm-hmm. But the main thing I think that one can agree that Bob Holmes liked was being horrible and scary. Yes. There's this quote attributed to him, let's scare the little buggers. And this, of course, was shared by, um, this is opinion shared by, by Hinchcliffe? Yeah, yes and no. I was, I was reading through an interview conducted in the 50th anniversary year with uh, Philip Hinchcliffe. And he, uh, he was saying um, Bob Holmes, of course, was very inter- influenced by Hammer Horror. And Holmes right. would say to Hinchcliffe, uh, so we could do The Beast with Five Fingers or The Curse of the Mummy. And Hinchcliffe was saying, I I have never seen these films. Bob was, because <laughs> these were films from the 40s and 50s. And um, at the time Hinchcliffe took over, he was 29, the same same age that Verity Lambert was. So they're both young producers. So he hadn't seen these horror films. And so he, uh, Holmes was saying, well, we can do this, we can do that. And Hinchcliffe kind of responds, yeah, I think I know what you mean. So in some ways, uh, Hinchcliffe was the throttle or the handbrake on Holmes, keeping him from excess. And actually, uh, without, I mean, I think we'll probably go in to discuss each each show mm-hmm. uh, in, in individually. But I think if you look at some of the writing that Holmes did for um in the 80s mm-hmm. for the uh for jnt with eric sayward yeah with eric sayward you'll see that actually the excess wasn't 
tempered by someone as I can level headed and basically posh <laughs> as um Phyllis, Philip Hinchcliffe right. is and was um I'm thinking particularly of the two doctors right. which I think is kind of spoiled by an overemphasis on kind of comedy gore and death right. and kind of just bodily fluids right I would argue the two doctors is probably his worst script yeah and I said and it, and it, and, it sh- and if someone had been just saying you know what you know what Bob you just need to take that bit out right. and tone that bit down which is what a script editor should be doing rather than Absolutely. like Bob Holmes is a fan favorite whatever he writes yeah. down must go on the screen <laughs> exactly exactly and I think the other thing to say about Phil Hinchcliffe is that I think famously he is a very very talented producer yes which means it, it, he basically spends the money where it needs to get spent mm-hmm. and he doesn't spend the money where it doesn't need right. to get spent and all of those all of these three seasons you know within the parameters of being doctor who when within the parameters of it being britain in the 1970s look like a million dollars well it's also interesting that uh hinchcliffe has a self-professed love of cliffhangers and that was one of the things that he was interested in ramping up during his time as producer and it could also explain why like in some of the four four part stories that episode four wasn't quite as uh, stunning as the first three episodes, there's, there's kind of a classic letdown, say, like with the Terror of the Zygons or Pyramid of Mars, where ep- Absolutely. episode four quite isn't as good. And it could be that Hinchcliffe and Holmes kind of directed their energies in the first three parts or the first part of that serial because that had the cliffhanger in there. And then episode four was a resolution and they were going to be starting at something new the the following yeah. following week so it's almost as if uh holmes would lose interest in the story by the time that episode four would come along i think i think that's a very good point and i think actually by and large these uh each one of these stories does suffer from a fourth episode slump which in, in some ways you know makes makes both hinchcliffe and holmes you know very actually very contemporary mm-hmm. uh, show makers or showrunners um, because what they're interested in is making you watch next week. Right, exactly. So they already have a hook for next week if it's episode four of a four-part serial, right? You, there's yeah. going to be something new. So you really, your efforts are going to go, I want to have them coming back for week two and week three. Yeah. So those cliffhangers, yeah. and then for that final week four, those, so those three cliffhangers are very important. But by the time episode four concludes, it's all right because there's going to be a new story and that's what's going to get people tuning in. So you have a refinement of like, you know, absolutely traditional, uh, or a refinement and enhancement of absolute traditional coup cliffhangers like, you know, the monster claw mm-hmm. or the monster hand or the monster breathe or the monster eye, the the kind of like, blimey, there's going to be a monster next week. Mm-hmm. Um, I really have to watch. Well, the, uh, though I guess, I mean, it's difficult for me to fully understand this because there would be no way in hell that I wouldn't have been watching Doctor Who right. the following week. Well, um, so but, but for people who are maybe more more casual, more casual watchers, that was that was the thing. Well, they were aging it up ever so slightly in uh, 74, 75 and 76. They were going for a slightly more mature viewer. Yeah. And ultimately, yeah, I mean, kids have a lot of pull. But if they can't convince their parents to turn on the television at, what, 5.30 in the afternoon on a Saturday, they're not going to be able to watch it. You know, the parents might send them out to play or they want to, who knows. Right. And I can still actually remember describing in kind of horrified terms to my 
younger sister who is her, probably listening. Hi, Rosie. <laughs> um, the the uh, the cliffhanger. Oh, what is it? Episode four or episode five? I think it's the cliffhanger episode five of the Towers of Wang Chiang, where we actually then we for the only time. Um, we see the face of the war criminal from the 51st century, Magnus Greel, and his horrific disfigurement due to the power of the time cabinet. And just, you know, and Rosie, unfortunately, my sister had missed it because I think she had been out playing or something and she couldn't <laughs> believe that she'd missed such like a, an horrific pivotal moment as the Magnus Greel reveal. His face is almost melted with wax. <laughs> oh, it's super cool. Kind of pig-faced. Uh, it, it's just... He's bent, he's twisted. It's it's a hideous image. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, well, it's Phantom of the Opera, basically, is, mm-hmm. is the main thing that they were using for that one. Yeah, and, and another overriding or another uh, influence on this whole era, of these whole three years, was the rise of Mary Whitehouse. She is probably one of the most influential critics of Doctor Who, who causes the series to change the most. It was through her efforts that... We saw the end of the horror era and moving into kind of sci-fi comedy, which was shepherded in with Graham Williams. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think one, one should probably contextualize that a little bit by saying that Mary Whitehouse was against pretty much everything. Um, it wasn't just Doctor Who. I mean, she was just, a, just an awful... Oh, awful busybody yeah. and her kind of her national viewers and listeners association, mm-hmm. uh, and also something one something wonderful called the National Festival of Light, was all about I don't know <laughs> making things nice again and not mm-hmm. liking gay people or scary things. Yeah, it was a conservative Christian reaction to modernity in television. But again, for our American listeners, I, I would have to uh, emphasize that conservative Christianity in the United Kingdom, certainly in the 1970s, was very, very different from what one might imagine conservative Christianity was in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very anti-American for a start. <laughs> America is a place where all bad things come from. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's also, it's conservative in terms of its... It's not, it really is wanting to wind back to kind of a, a literal 1950s uh, media landscape where it was, you know, and, and Britain, uh, Britain uh, is, is more important than anything. So the British, em- the, the, right. the British Empire, um, the kind of racism is in it isn't really kind of like a, an American style racism, but it's an, it's an, it's an imperial racism. Um, it's paternal. It's basically, it's, it's, it's deeply paternalistic. Uh, and its conservatism is based in a in a in a kind of a parent child relationship. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you know we had the male middle aged white male writers of Doctor Who reacting in through their stories of society of Doctor Who, and then we have a younger producer and a script editor who flat out loves horror and wants to scare the children yeah. coming up. Um, with a reaction from uh, Mary Whitehouse and her organization towards what was being on the program. And I wonder if that she had much to say or if she had reached much prominence in the early part of the 70s or late 60s with Doctor Who because I really only associate her with her uh, axe to grind with Philip Hinchcliffe. Yeah, and I think, I mean, she she started out in the 60s as very much, you know, a, re- a reaction against what we all imagine, you know, the 60s to be. Mm-hmm. But she she kind of strode across the entire media landscape 
uh, gay news was was a you know a gay newspaper that she prosecuted. Um, there's this famous play at the National Theatre called The Roman in Britain, The Romans in Britain, which had a had an infamous uh, same sex rape scene in it, which she was against. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was she was against most she was against most things, um, and uh, again, really kind of split the country in many ways between people who thought she was just an awful old busybody. And people who thought that, yes, she was a campaigner against ghastliness in all its forms. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most amusing, um, slightly, uh, uh, let's see, uh, uh, PG anecdotes about Mary Whitehouse, or not anecdotes, or things to note, is that there was a very famous pornographic magazine um, from the 1970s that was started by a man called Richard, not Richard Sullivan, uh, Richard Sullivan's the actor, um, Thingy Sullivan, who was like a famous British pornographer and, and really kind of really deeply unpleasant person, um, kind of like a Larry Flint of Britain. Um, and he started his his most his flagship title his flagship porn mag title was called White House, <laughs> um, in, in directly to kind of you know just irritate Mary Whitehouse is that okay <laughs> my main porn mag featuring kind of you know fat ugly men and weird looking women um, is going to be called White House. So anyway, <laughs> that's Mary Whitehouse. Anyway, that's getting way off the subject because we 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 need to be talking about Holmes and Holmes and Hinchcliffe, not Whitehouse and Sullivan. Yeah, we don't want to turn this into the Mary Whitehouse the hour. Mary Whitehouse <laughs> show. But again, I, it's just I mean, for our American listeners, just fire up your internet engines and go to Wikipedia and just explore the wonderful world of Mary Whitehouse. <laughs> And you will get a good idea of how social conservatism differs in the United Kingdom from social conservative mm. so social conservatism in the United States. So, yes. the and sorry, sorry, just as one last thing, <laughs> I think it is indicative of how immensely popular and how immensely pivotal to uh, British culture in the sixties and seventies Doctor Who was that she took it on herself to fight this particular television program when there are a whole bunch of other things she could have obsessed about. But it, it, I think it is really to show how absolutely central Doctor Who was to British culture in the right. 1970s. It's to show that everybody watched. It wasn't just a kind of after-school for like after-school nerds on PBS. It's like this was a show that this was mass viewing. This was 10, 11 million people watching watching this show right. every Saturday. It was it was it was massive, absolutely massive. Appointment viewing. Appointment viewing, exactly, exactly, exactly. So right. So I guess the further we get away from the mid seventies, early mid seventies, the further we get away from the Hinchcliffe home era. Yeah. There's been a backlash or this uh, resistance to this type of Doctor Who storytelling, and it's generally seen as these 40, 50-year-old fanboys who won't let go of it. There's been better Doctor Who produced in the 21st century. Uh, This is just horror hammer pastiches. It's gothic horror. They're just remaking movies. It's not original. And it's gotten a lot of bad baggage over the past 40 years here of Doctor Who. And that's just wrong. (laughs) Sorry. Yes. That may be what some people think. Mm -hmm. They are wrong, the people who think that. Yes, of course, it was made in the 1970s. There are sexist and certainly sort of a little bit racist things well, in it. Well, definitely racist uh, if you look at wow. the towns of Wang Chang. Yeah. yeah, but again, I mean, we'll come on to talk about this. I mean, basically, I mean, they're pastiching mm-hmm. uh, 1920s racism, which was the kind of Sexton Blake, Bulldog Drummond racism that Bob Holmes grew up reading as a kid. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, I mean, I guess they probably shouldn't have pastiched that. But uh, anyway, we can... Um, we'll we can, get it. Uh, we can t- yeah, um, I mean, I mean we, can, we can talk about that. I mean, I think, I think the shows, to me, still stand out really right. well. And I think, um, you know, the fact that they got... Um, I'm not going to remember his name, but the voice of Sutek to... Gabriel redo, Wolf. Gabriel Wolf to redo the voice of the evil devil creature uh, for David Tennant mm-hmm. uh, and the Impossible Planet... This stuff, I think, really still works. Right. I mean, it's it's very hard for me to to look at it objectively, of course, mm-hmm. because I mean, these three seasons I'm absolutely passionate about mm-hmm. in terms of entertainment. But you know, I'm a I'm a kind of a liberal arty kind of guy. I can see where <laughs> they went wrong. Right. Um, but you know, I can also see how they would just you know they were really working hard mm-hmm. to produce a fantastically entertaining popular fantasy sci-fi show. And it was a radical departure from what Letts and Dix had done with the unit years with Pertwee. So they really took the show in a new direction that hadn't been seen, at least in part, since the 1960s. I mean, I'll I'll just say again, I mean, I, I would emphasize entertaining you know, you can watch these shows or these these three seasons with you know a critical eye, but I really defy you not to be entertained. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the acting, the casting, the production values, the writing—it's all as on point as you could possibly have been in the mid nineteen seventies for for, for uh, the BBC, and they're just fantastically entertaining, popular science fiction shows. It's, I mean, you can't, you can't not say that, mm-hmm. basically. They're not dull, is what they aren't. So Barry Letts was still producer for the first Tom Baker story, Robot, and Hinchcliffe was shadowing him. But Bob Holmes was, I believe, a script editor, and uh, this is a... Terence Dick's story, and it's kind of uh, King Kong. It's uh, it's absolutely King Kong. Retelling. Absolutely King Kong. I mean, the robot tr- goes to a giant size, mm-hmm. and um, though I guess King Kong was always a giant size, and kidnaps a, a young lady and right. places her on top of a tall building, and then has a fight with some airplanes. It's it's King Kong. <laughs> um, it's also fantastically awesome in several other ways. Um, I would, you know, the costume design of the robot, um, and I'm looking at my my my. Uh, model of uh, my accurate action figure of the robot from robot the robot k1 as we speak um the costume design is amazing michael kilgariff being a really tall man um animates the robot beautifully and it's scary as well and i i was you know as i said i'm i'm going to talk about me being a kid again i was very hostile towards the change from john pertwee whom i loved to uh, this interloper tom baker what the hell's he he all about and but it by the end I was completely won over and it had a tank in it right. and unit was blowing stuff up and it was awesome <laughs> lovely love that one mm-hmm. yeah. so is it uh, King Kong I guess is a horror film yeah is Robot a horror not show? really I mean there are some horror sort of horrifying I mean I think the opening where we have the robot's eye view mm-hmm. of um, you know breaking in to steal the disintegrated gun parts mm-hmm. um, I think that's kind of that's a sort of horror movie thing you get the you get the point the POV mm-hmm. um, with people going ah, ah and then dying and stuff yeah. I obviously nuclear war is vaguely horrifying mm-hmm. though it's more kind of nuclear war in a kind of James Bond sort of way right um, we don't actually there's not actually going to be a nuclear war mm-hmm. I mean there is you know there's the lovely Hilda Winters who's is kind of like a dominatrix <laughs> um, a figure again 
little bit horrible, but no, not a huge mm-hmm. amount of horror in there, really. It's, I think, sets the stage for what Doctor Who is in this era, is it's a mashup. It's, we're going to take, we're going to take a concept. So in this case, King Kong, we're going to mash it up with a totalitarian uh, scientific elite. And what, what do we get from that? And how does the Doctor fit into it? And so it sets the precedent of movie mashup that we're going to see return in season 13. Let me just kind of contextualize that a little bit from the British perspective. Again, David, you might be, well, I I guess maybe you can't say what was on playing on the television in the 1970s (laughs) um, in the United States. But certainly in the 1970s uh, on the BBC in the United Kingdom, you could see the movie King Kong pretty regularly. Mm. Um, It played maybe once a year. By the time when I was watching Robot, I'd already seen King Kong. Mm -hmm on the TV. So we were, uh, you know, this wasn't, uh, they weren't taking uh, elements from movies secretly and pretending that they made them up themselves. Everybody knew about mm-hmm. King Kong. Everyone had seen King Kong. I guess I can't remember when the Dino De Laurentiis remake of King Kong got released, but it must have been somewhere around this time. 77? I don't... Was it 77? Yeah, I don't, I'd have to Google it, but mm-hmm. I can't be bothered. But yeah, you know, I mean, so yeah, I mean, we all knew about King Kong. Yeah, these are these are open secrets, and people were not we upset by it, right? It, it's yeah. sort of like, and as kids, I mean, you know, adults wouldn't be fooled, obviously, but as kids, we we weren't being fooled mm-hmm. either. Well, yeah. I think it's what you suggested previously. This is how kids play. Okay, let's play King Kong, but let's instead of a giant ape, let's make him a robot. Yeah, let's make him a robot. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, that would be awesome. Right. Yeah, exactly. And let's involve our friends. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, you know, by this time, obviously, the Doctor is someone we know, but we're a little bit nervous of him because he looks looks different mm-hmm. but sarah jane is our friend right and the brigadier is our friend mm-hmm. and sergeant benton is our friend mm-hmm. and unit is super cool mm-hmm. and we all want to be all we all love the army so these are so again i mean to warm to that theme again you know we, we're, we're sort of playing movies with 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 people that we like mm-hmm. and then we uh invite harry sullivan along with with sarah and we get the ark in space which is Ooh. one of the all-time greatest doctor who stories Ever. <laughs> of all time. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you want to say why? <laughs> <laughs> well, it transcends the limitations of a BBC studio-bound story to tell something very gripping about humanity and the will to survive, and it's told in an entertaining way. So agree more. We're, we're introduced into body horror with the transformation of the leader, uh, Noah, into a weirin, which is kind of an insect wasp, space wasp. It's space and, wasps, yeah. And it's, it's horrific. And we see, it is horrific. We see the doctor taking uh, risks with trying to link himself up through the dead Wirren to get the last images of what the yeah. Wirren saw before it died. And yeah. and it also sets itself up very nicely in a way that we haven't seen since the Wheel in Space, where we just have the TARDIS team exploring this... A Wheel in Space. This, uh, in the case of the Wheel in Space, it was a, a, an abandoned rocket ship. But in this case, it's, a, yeah, the disused Wheel in Space, the disused space station. You know, yeah. they really carry that first episode. So it's oh, yeah. it's just a very wonderfully acted, good, strong cast, excellent writing given to Tom Baker with his soliloquy with about humanity. It has a lot of things going for it. And 
as you hinted earlier, it's a precursor for aliens. Absolutely. And I, and I think, of course, as, as, as I've been pointing out, not only was Ridley Scott a designer for the BBC in the 60s and was, was originally set to do the designs for the Daleks, <laughs> but, you know, as I said, everybody in Britain was watching Doctor Who at this point. And Ridley Scott, right. would, have, Ridley, Ridley Scott would have watched the Ark in Space because mm-hmm. that's what everyone did. And right. to say that it's you probably started him thinking about Alien, the movies, absolutely mm-hmm. true. Um, I mean, it's not provable. I mean, you probably have to ask Ridley. I don't know, don't know if anyone ever, ever has mm-hmm. done. But yes, no, I mean, he would have seen this and there is a direct connection. Um, just, to, just to riff on, on one thing that David said, the first episode is just the three member TARDIS crew and they completely carry that entire first episode it is creepy and scary and disconcerting Mm -hmm. but it's weirdly empty which is perfect because the space station itself is also weirdly empty and the reason why it's so weirdly empty is because Holmes and Hinchcliffe are saving up a cliffhanger and the cliffhanger mm-hmm. is the first reveal of the monster right so you can't the monster doesn't appear in the entire first episode it is just the three main stars um and it's brilliant and it isn't even really the monster that we first see it's the monster. no it's, the it's husk. a corpse yeah a husk <laughs> a husk a husk of the monster and yeah and, and, I say, and again again it's again it's very instructive uh, it has a reasonably good resolve in the fourth, in the first episode. It's slightly sorry, sorry, I beg your pardon. In the fourth episode, um, mm-hmm. it has a reasonably good resolve. It's a slight reprise, I feel, of Death to the Daleks, where someone you know sacrifices themselves. Spoiler right. alert to you know destroy the evil things it slightly goes off the boil by the end but it's just got some amazing just horrific scenes people getting taken over by monsters and right. knowing that they're being taken over now, by monsters this was a bob holmes written piece and it was a effectively a page one rewrite of a script from john lucarati an earlier doctor who writer and i guess bob holmes said lucarati had uh, taken off and for a vacation somewhere on his yacht in the Mediterranean wasn't even available for rewrites so it wasn't what Hinchcliffe and Holmes had in mind for Doctor Who so it was a rewrite on Holmes's part yeah and there's Hinchcliffe put his foot down he um, put the brakes on um, Bob Holmes there was a scene that was cut where Noah begs Vira to kill him and it was uh, Hinchcliffe deemed it was inappropriate or too scary for children and he had to cut it though of course i mean i I said and this is something that we'll come back to i think frequently uh during the metabilis 2 podcast experience before the age of of home video which is really not for me until the late very late 1980s the only way to revisit this show was to read the book Right. Um, which was an adaptation by ian martyr the actor who played um harry sullivan which does include that scene Hmm. um interesting uh, where Noah, who is being taken over by the Wirren to become the Wirren Queen, Queen begs his second in command, Fira, to kill him. Mm-hmm. And it is, a, it's a, it's, I mean, Marta was well known for, for you know, piling on the horror, um, <laughs> the adultness in his adaptations, similarly with his ad- adaptation of the next story, The Sontaran Experiment. But it is, it's a scary, horrible read. It mm-hmm. was, it's really, yeah, it's nasty, nasty stuff. Well, let's just uh, to summarize the Ark in Space. Yeah. It is a horror show set under floodlights. It is a brightly lit horror episode. And so you don't need shadows. You don't need 
grime or <laughs> ancient gothic mansions yeah you need good storytelling and you need good direction and you need good uh set design you need a lot of things but you don't need darkness to be horror because no, this is a truly horrific story exactly and it is it's super brightly lit it's a white bright set it's you know mm-hmm. it's lit it's lit by the bbc unionized lighting <laughs> team who can you know there can, will be no shadows uh, who can only light in one particular way <laughs> um, but yeah and it works it works extraordinarily well and is is definitely you know in the in the top five of who stories of all time i would have said <laughs> So at the end, the time team transports down to the planet Earth that's been ravaged by solar storms, and we get the Santaran experiment, a two-parter. Which, which is a super two-parter. Um, I think one can detect elements of Bob Home. It's ostensibly written by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, right. who you know were the kind of, uh, apparently were known as the Bristol Boys for some yep. reason. Um, <laughs> and, well, I think notorious for like turning in just completely undoable epics i guess they went slightly smaller scale on this but i think you can detect there's there's definitely bob Holm elements in it i mean i think something as simple as the galset colonists the ostensive well they're both heroes and victims of this well they're mainly victims actually of this particular show are all given south african accents Hmm. which is i think a stroke of just minor It's just a minor tweak. I mean, everyone can do a South African accent and it just makes them sound like they're from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I I would definitely put that down. to That's just the kind of touch that a Bob Holmes would add to a script. Mm. I think I I think I would disagree with you. I think that's more of a Baker Martin influence because if you look at. Are they from South Africa or something? No, they're from Bristol. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well they should have bristolian accents then. no but they, if you look at like the invisible and <laughs> invisible enemy where they kind of have the funky uh spelling of words oh yeah could so be. i think yeah, this right. is a baker martin type thing that they yeah, were into well, maybe all right but the, the, the other thing they of course they always do i mean i, I love the invisible enemy is they always have a, a, a ridiculous catchphrase mm-hmm. which sadly they don't have in the Santaran experiment no um, they didn't but, start adding that until uh yeah the ridiculous cat the quest is the quest and um <laughs> contact has been made yeah i think you their can't first beat it can't I, beat it yeah i think their first catchphrase came comes later in the hinchcliffe holmes era of the hand it, of fear it does oh yes eldred must live yes <laughs> Which is said, said in any number of different ways by Eldred most of the characters, by, by any number of the characters. Um, so Tara, it is it's hor- It's a horrible story. I mean, the Santara started out, and I think has been uh, interestingly they've been mm-hmm. kind of resurrected in this manner in the in the new series as basically kind of jokes. You know, right. they're kind of like well, they didn't start out that way. I mean, I, well, I, let me let me let me move it. I mean, I think originally they started out as a literal joke because I think, mm-hmm. um, as far as I've read, the idea was to have an alien whose head was the same shape as its helmet. Yes. So when it took its helmet off, it was exactly the same shape. Mm-hmm. So I mean, and the, that that was in the Time Warrior, <laughs> and then the Time Warrior. I mean, Links in the Time Warrior is a pretty horrible creature. But again, there are elements of humor um, when 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 he arrives on on Earth, um, you know, puts a flag into the right. ground and plays the Santaran anthem, um, etc. etc. <laughs> so there's a there's kind of a hubris to them, which is which is kind of funny. Um, however, in the Santaran, it, it's just like sadism. Basically, they're mm-hmm. kidnapping these 
abject, you know, colonists who were kind of, you know, in rags and kind of fleeing from their fleeing for for their lives, right? Um, and subjecting them to pretty horrible torture See, that's until I, they die. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I that's think. That's the story. Is, yeah, I think that's the influence of Bob Holmes. Like, okay, okay, use the Santarns because I'll get a little bit of kickback from that. Yeah. And the torture element, I think, would be more of a Bob Holmes influence rather than a Baker Martin influence. Right. That we've okay. seen yeah. in some of their other stories. Right, right, right. And again, I mean, the cliffhanger still stays with me to this day when poor old Sarah is being, you know, snakes and this like her hands are sinking into kind of, mm-hmm. she's sinking into kind of gloopy, kind of pooey looking mud. And it's mm-hmm. just, ah, no, Sarah, what's going to happen? Well, the bit, yeah, that was, that came in the middle of the uh, episode two, I think. The big, oh, the big cliffhanger was, oh, was the that reveal. Not the cliffhanger? The cliffhanger was when Sarah is captured by that uh, survey, survey robot. Yeah, survey robot with the other Galsec uh, colonists. Colonist, and there's a reveal of the Santaran, and Sarah's going. Oh, it is. It's links, or she's going. Yeah, it's links. It's links. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, I know. It's it's so good. Um. Yeah. And she uh, and Sarah really sells the terror in this story, both in the uh, reveal of Link, or uh, it's not. Oh, geez, I can't remember which. It's a, a style field. Yes, field major style. So with the reveal of the style, field major style, and then just with her being tortured, the the female of the species. <laughs> with, a, with a different thorax and all yes. that. So I guess that's from. That's from the time where, yes. Um, but yeah, no, it's horrible. It's horrible, and they're just tortured. And they're and the what what makes it scary is that they are weak and beaten individuals in the first mm-hmm. place. They aren't they aren't being captured from mm-hmm. position of strength. They're being they're being basically sadistically tortured for mm-hmm. really no readily no readily apparent reason, right? Uh, to be and, honest, and the resi- and even and I think I think doesn't Star get like mildly reprimanded by his boss over the television set so like you know he's taking his time too long you've really got to stop torturing these people and like actually finish your report yes Um, i'm sorry i'm having too much good time torturing everybody yeah well the resolution is kind of weak just that the doctor can bluff his way that the the santarans are so bureaucratic that they can't proceed without steyer's final report so Right, yeah, and then they just kind of give up. And right. go, no, we're not going to invade Earth. Oh, you got us this time. <laughs> the why they're going to invade Earth anyway is kind mm-hmm. of like left a little bit. I mean, it is. I mean, you you are right. I mean, it is. It is completely Holmes. I mean, there's mm-hmm. really there's no plot to this apart from people get captured and tortured. Mm-hmm. But it is. A, it's entertaining, and the location shooting is very Dartmoor. very mm. well done. So. Yeah, Dartmoor uh, scenes of uh, it's a setting of Hound of the Baskervilles. Hound so. of the Baskervilles, indeed. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I've uh, I've been to the very tour <laughs> where this was filmed, and it was super exciting. It was too. Um, and yeah, no, it's it's great. It's so, great. Mm, yeah. So the, they get intercepted on their way back to Nerva Beacon, and we have <laughs> Genesis of the Daleks. Yes. <laughs> Was it was a, a scene right out of the Seventh Seal, or what, okay. which one? Uh, the beginning of the uh, it's Bergman with uh, with the uh, Gallifrey. And... Oh right, yeah, 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 yeah. Time Lords not quite looking like Time Lords yet. That must be confusing <laughs> for contemporary fans. Well, actually, didn't they look kind of? They kind of well, no, they didn't. Well, it has they... a, like a black, but it's like a floppy kind of cloth collar, not mm-hmm. a, like a collar that goes all the way around the top like 
Time Lords is supposed mm-hmm. to have nowadays, apparently. Mm-hmm. But that opening scene is very reminiscent of Bob Holmes's earlier scene in uh, Terror of the Autons, where the Time Lord comes in dressed in a bowler hat. You know, yes, just... yes, much more. So that that's yeah. kind of an influence of Holmes there. But exactly, is Genesis uh, a horror program? <laughs> oh God, yeah. Like, I mean, it's a horror show all the way through. I mean, you've got, I mean, you've got a whole bunch of Terry Nation stuff. Obviously, you have got Nazis. Um, you've got secret experiments, uh, you've got a war, um, you've got uh, unconvincing geography, uh, <laughs> you've got a whole bunch of stuff that's like typically Terry. Uh, but woven in amongst that, you've just got some really horrible things mm-hmm. like the Dalek mutants in their mm-hmm. little jars and the clams. Clams. Who could forget the clams that that, that are wandering <laughs> the around? Terror clams. The terror clams. You know, it's just. Uh, and then, of course, you have you have the whole uh, you have the you have the design of Davros, um, which is a classic piece of design, as I think I've said before. What's genius about Davros is that it's 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 a, it's a he is he the design in terms of the show the design of Davros. He's he's basically a Dalek. He has mm-hmm. one eye. He has one arm. And he's in a motorized wheelchair, but of course, in the in the in the show itself, that that's kind of reversed because then you realize the reason why the Daleks are so crap in terms of their design, um, in terms of the practicality of their design, is because Davros has designed them because he's a megalomaniac has designed them to look exactly like himself with one eye and one arm and in a wheelchair, and it's just uh, it's great. And there's a massacre at the end, which is also completely horrible and scarring, mm-hmm. and was very much um, something that Mary Mary Whitehouse was against um uh, I, I i seem to remember oh definitely after watching genesis the daleks she described this uh doctor who as tea time brutality for tots it is tea time it's 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 it's, it's definitely brutal in amongst the the terry nation freedom fighters it's really depressing i mean mm-hmm. pretty much everyone dies mm-hmm. which is fine because as we if we if we were old enough to remember the original the daleks from 1963 mm-hmm. it that that is what happens to Scar. Everyone dies, mm-hmm. but it's it's really this. It's kind of everyone dies. It's it's horrible. It's a mm-hmm. horrible story, and it's cruel as well. Um, the I think there's the famous scene where Sarah Jane is uh, is being made to climb up a rocket. Oh right, to, to, to deliver yeah. um, uh, ex- nuclear explosives. Mm-hmm. You know, again, sadistic. Like they're using human prisoners to do something that, you know, uh, just a lift would probably be able to do just as well Mm -hmm. or an elevator. And one of the guards kind of pushes her and then like catches her, uh, like pretends to push her off and then doesn't. It's just, it's nasty. Mm -hmm. It's nasty, nasty, nasty. And it's grimy and ugh. Mm -hmm. And we have some, you know, we have some really good writing or the, the, the mutos and with Severin, he's, he's a really sympathetic character. And there's some, I mean, there's, there's lines from that. He says that I think you could take out of like any kind of Frankenstein movie. Like um, the one that comes to mind is uh, why must we always destroy beauty? Why kill another creature? Because it's not in our image. You know, that's, you know, he's trying to defend Sarah from the other mutos and that, and it's, it's, it has that kind of, inversion that you would expect in a horror film when you're looking you know the the your normal monsters would be the mutos but in fact there's there's a race of humanoids the collids that are being led by this madman that are deliberately mutating themselves to be their ultimate form which is going to be kind of this octopi squid thing that's going to have to exist in this uh, metal tank 
and th- that's just going to be spitting vile and hate from its every yeah. you know it, it it it's really a trans it it just it's a, a nice contrast between okay these these are mutations from this nuclear war but this Davros is taking it even further and horribly hor- yeah more horrible more horrible yeah um, I would point point out of course that Severin is the uh, is the name of the uh, of the hero ostensive hero of the novel Venus and Furs by the 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 founder of sadomasochism Leopold von Sacha Masoch. So, you know, I think there's literal horrible sadistic things going on here. And I think the naming of the character is kind of, I, I, I don't think it, could be, it can be coincidence um, um, that he's called Severin. Mm-hmm. And again, what's brilliant to me about and what is horrible about this is that it's so clear that what Davros is doing is not only wrong kind of morally, but kind of literally wrong. Uh, you know, he's not making... And he's he's crazy. He's not actually making a good thing. Mm-hmm. He's not making an ultimate creature of any kind. He's basically dissolving people into these kind of pathetic, horrible mm-hmm. mutants that have to live the rest of their lives in wheelchairs. It's the whole thing is just kind of nuts and crazy right. and unpleasant. Yeah, just to quote another part of the script where the doctor is going, uh, you know, Davros, if you created a virus in your laboratory, something contagious and infectious that killed on contact, you know, a virus that would destroy all forms of life, would you allow its use? And Davros is, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would do that. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, you're not, you're not, you're not observing like someone who is evil doing something that is evil. You're doing, you're observing someone who's mad. He's power doing mad. something that is mad. Yeah, he's um, going. Yeah, he's going. Yes, to hold in my hand a capsule that contains such power. To know that the the power of life and death is in his hands. You know, he would, he would take that power. You know that. You know, it's it's like what Troughton would do, like with in Underwater Menace with Zaroff. He would kind of pose an innocent question right, and just right. kind of go, "Yes, I know you truly are mad. You're you're irredeemable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. you had your chance, but you total yeah. you totally failed. You are bonkers. You are actually a nut, and yes. that's 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 it's not good. So, what's what's frightening, I think, horrific about the show, about the series as a whole, is that as the viewer, we 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 kind of just watch this madness, mm-hmm. um, and there is no way out for the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and well, we they're watch... trapped without even the TARDIS. Exactly, and our heroes. We watch our heroes struggle in a world that is, and I, you know, this is a metaphor, I think, for war in general, but a world that is that is literally mad, mm-hmm. where no one is acting sanely. Even the ostensive, you know, good guys who are the Thals are torturing prisoners mm-hmm. and have a missile that's aimed that's going to completely obliterate their enemies. Right. Um, even the geography, which I think people have criticized, I think you can, yes. which, which is the object is weird, is you have two kind of civilizations that have been warring for thousands of years, but apparently you can walk <laughs> between. It's St. Paul <laughs> and Minneapolis. <laughs> exactly. It's based like Minneapolis and St. Paul, which, which again, you know, one could criticize as a, as a, as a necessary, you know, compromise in terms of plot mm-hmm. but one could also talk about they're all effing insane mm-hmm. um and you know they, they hate each other and they've worn for millions of years thousands of years yet they live basically next door to each other and, <laughs> and one can actually explain it away by the fact they're all nuts yes 
Um, so it's great, and I, I, I yes, Genesis of the Daleks is is deeply disturbing and and super horrific, and mm-hmm. a great a great Genesis of the Daleks. It yeah. does what it says on the tin, basically. It's a good yeah. story. Um, should we should we finish off with Revenge of the Cybermen and then do like the rest of it next week? Yeah, should we finish season twelve and yeah, yeah? Because yeah. I mean, there's so much to say about this because it's all yeah. just so great. Well, it's also one of our favorite eras. So. It is, yeah. Sadly, not sadly. We're we're, <laughs> we're 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 good people that we like this so much. Uh, maybe, maybe we should tackle a least favorite era in era next. Anyway, um, so Revenge <laughs> of the Cybermen is then the concluding uh, story of this series of this season. Um, well, yes, except for uh, Terror of the Zygons, the following serial was uh, held over for open season 13. So it, indeed. Was re- it was recorded as part of this block. Indeed, indeed. Um, Re- Revenge of the Cybermen, I think, often gets a bum rap in terms of coming straight after mm-hmm. some, you know, a string of a string of genius. I have a lot of time for Revenge of the Cybermen. It was my first encounter with the Cyberman. silver giants mm-hmm. of 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 Telos, whatever we're calling them nowadays. <laughs> and I thought they were I thought they were super cool. Um mm-hmm. first episode is without Cybermen and ends up on an, an amazing cliffhanger which mm-hmm. is completely based on something kids do in their bedrooms which is trying not to touch the floor. Mm-hmm. I thought the Cybermats were super scary. Everyone's mm-hmm. got a disease. The Cybermen are horrible and they mm-hmm. make you like suicide bomb yourself like they're mm-hmm. that like they're in isis or something <laughs> uh the vogons were kind of freaky looking but the makeup works well yeah, it's serviceable it does work well it's good they look great they look but like it's, aliens it's such a it's yeah they definitely look like aliens but it's such a waste to put kevin stoney behind a mask okay i i agree it is a, i mean now, now that i know who kevin stoney <laughs> is of course then i didn't I right Kevin Stoney was. Um, now I know who he is. It's like, yeah, why put him behind a mask? Because mm-hmm. he's 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 literally an awesome actor. Mm-hmm. And it was, this was the last time he'd appear in the show, right. which is sad because right. he's super. Mm-hmm. But any, but otherwise, I mean, I thought it was pretty effective at the time. And who doesn't like a plan that's made of gold? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, probably the um, most effective yeah. scenes were not the ones set on the beacon, but down in Wookiee Hole. Wookiee Hole, and yeah. If you if you take the time to watch the kind of the making of videos of it, that they were. The whole production team was pretty kind of spooked by the uh, the, the, witch of Wookie yeah, Hole. the superstitions surrounding Wookiee Hole and yeah, Wookiee Hole scary stuff. So you really get you get the nice thing about filming in Wookiee Hole is, is you get good shadows. It's really good darkness, and it really is a nice contrast that you're down on Voga compared to up on the on the beacon on the brightly lit Nerva beacon. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's 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 great. It works. It works very very well and. You know, obviously, I think it was a challenging, a challenging shoot. But the decision to make, uh, to actually shoot in a cave mm-hmm. system, was just right. Because I think, by and large, when the plot calls for a cave system and we rely on sets like or um, CSO, uh, uh, like the Solarians or CSO, like um, Underworld, uh, it doesn't really work that way. Right. You really, you really got to go underground. Mm-hmm. You got to go underground, and that's the only way it's going to work. Right. Yeah, and it's it looks it looks like a million dollars again, you know, and the yeah, it's great, and the and I I actually again, um, having not really known about the Cybermen mm-hmm. before they turned up in this show, I really I they had a they have a good pathos to them as well. <laughs> you like Camp that, Cyber Leader? <laughs> well, again, that didn't really register for me at the time, but I I enjoyed the pathos of these these they're these super efficient kind of you know war machine mm-hmm. men. 
um, who had been reduced by, by the fact that they'd been beaten, mm-hmm. they'd been reduced to just to just four of them, right. and they're just trying to trying to get shit done. Um, and there's only four of them, so they're just going to blow everything up as much as possible. <laughs> but there's a sadness to. I felt there was a pathos to them that very much affected me at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's a huge amount of horror in here, other than. I guess being made to suicide bomb yourself is kind of horrific. Well, there's not a lot of horror in... This was a rewrite by Holmes from a Jerry Davis kind of outline to yeah. try to make it work, and it doesn't really work, and it's it's riddled with holes. It's that the the Vogons were outmatched on Voga by the Cybermen, who I would imagine the Vogons were firing gold bullets. And if you're going to... And yet they seem to be ineffectual on the Cybermen. So the, I... I find it a very entertaining serial. Like I said, it doesn't have a lot of horror entertaining. horror to it. But when you look at the peaks of, say, uh, what <laughs> Ar- Ark, Ark in Space was or Genesis was, right. and you compare it down to Revenge, yeah, it's a letdown. And if you look at season 12 as a whole and just the idea that Hinchcliffe and Holmes were really, or Hinchcliffe especially, was wanting to get people to tune in, with that ending, with uh, Revenge of the Cybermen ending season 12, it kind of is his episode four or episode six of his of that season where you kind of have a letdown. You, you had a pretty good season. Yeah, maybe you had a, a slight dip with the Santarin experiment. But it, overall, it kept building until you kind of, uh, kind of had this letdown with Revenge of the Cybermen. Though I think I think possibly at the time, I mean, I think that I think what one one might imagine is that you know we've got a new doctor, we have a we you know we have a kick-ass serial mm-hmm. with the Daleks, you know who are the other you know favorite villains from the from the sixties, right. Cybermen. Let's bring them back. That'll bring back some of the some of the old right. Kids they haven't been the seen fans. since the invasion. So they haven't been seen, seen since since the invasion. I mean, I think again, if you'd been used to old style Cybermen, mm-hmm. I think you would have been disappointed by these Cybermen because right. they do. Um, they, they're, they're, they're pretty emotional about stuff um, as someone I think many people have pointed out revenge is kind of an emotional reaction mm-hmm. not a logical reaction um, even though it's obviously being served cold in this instance uh, so yeah I mean obviously I think you know fans might have been kind of fans of the tomb the tomb of the Cybermen would be disappointed here but mm-hmm. so as a young fan myself well this is um, like you uh, said your first introduction to the this was like, whoa, these the gold can kill them. And, and I was well aware at that age that gold is not a common thing. Right. Like, wow, so if Cybermen <laughs> attacked Earth, like, it would be really hard to kill them because we don't have much gold. It's really rare. Like, I know my mum's got some jewelry that's got gold in it, but, like, it's gone. I'd have to get that offer. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> so I think that was genius. It's, I mean, it, it's such a kid thing. Ben, I mean, where did so, the gold necklace go? <laughs> I, was trying to, I was trying to kill the Cybermen, mommy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's genius because it just it just appeals straight to like, what kids always think about which is like Ooh, gold like my mum's got gold like how would I convince her to get rid of her wedding rings in order that I would kill help the doctor to kill some cybermen and, or even just play play in the backyard or play play down mm-hmm. yeah yeah anyway I wonder if that happened anywhere <laughs> I I wouldn't really wouldn't surprise me really dear BBC me. my son <laughs> stole all my gold to play Cybermen. To play Cybermen versus Vogons. Um under the ground. <laughs> In some caves. Uh. Yeah. Oh goodness. 
So, um, so do you want to? Do you want to? No, cover I think we'll or... pull a Hinchcliffe and leave it on a cliffhanger Excellent. for a very cliffhanger, a very yeah. good story coming up. Terror yeah. of the Zygons, one of my all-time there's a, favorites. There's a claw that's just appearing off screen <laughs> right now. With maybe suckers. It's, maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's manipulating a kind of fleshy bulb. <laughs> Like a giant, like a scary nipple of some kind, <laughs> like a like a kind of nipple a monster might have, <laughs> and like well, what the hell yeah, is that? Something that would really uh, set off Mary Whitehouse, though, because it would be far too suggestive. Oh. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and the, and the terror of the Zygons again. I think we could you know, one could very easy, very easily do an entire an entire episode <laughs> of the Metabolist Two on the terror of the Zygons because it's just again fabulous, 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 waving a tentacle. Yeah. Good. All right. Okay. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as we... As much as we've yes. enjoyed it, which is obviously a lot. <laughs> so this has been episode 17 of the Metabilis 2. I'm David. And I am Ben. And thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you. Good night. <laughs> ah, good stuff. Oh, good stuff. Can't beat a bit of, bit of Holmes and Hinchcliffe. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Metabilis 2 podcast. You can reach us with email at metabilis2, that's a number two, at gmail.com or on Twitter at metabilis2. And again, that's a number two. Hope to hear from you. Bye.